Hello, everyone. This week on the show, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, so far on the podcast, we have heard some great stories about our local businesses and their journey of starting that business. Uh, the mission of the NEA Chronicles podcast is to share the stories of the people in the communities of Northeast Arkansas so we can learn more about one, one another, whether it's a business event or charity or an individual's life story. Um, that's what we want to share. Um, I remember growing up as a young boy and hearing bits and pieces of my mother's childhood and how she grew up living in poverty in South Louisiana in the 50s and the 60s. So I recently asked her if she would be interested in sitting down and sharing her story with me and the listeners of this podcast. I want to thank my mom for agreeing to let me interview her. There was so much we didn't have time to get to and to cover about her life. Um, Her life story really is kind of like a novel and through it all she has remained a true example of what a mom should be. So I love you mom. Thank you for letting me uh, interview you. Uh, On another note, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook by searching NEA Chronicles. Like the page and I will keep you updated on everything that's coming up. Thank you for listening. Let's get started. All right. So tell us a little bit about uh, where you were born, where you were raised. Um, I was born in Benton, Louisiana. It sits right on the borderline of Orange, Texas. Um, I forget. What am I supposed to say now? Well, uh, when were you born? Oh, I was born on September the 4th, 1950, um, to Paul and Maggie Corville. And I had um, two sisters and two brothers older than myself. Okay, so you, when you were born, you had two sisters, two brothers older than you. Um, so tell me a little bit about your dad. I uh, my dad was, um, I don't know much about him because he passed when I was a year old, but um, I heard that he was a farm laborer, and um, he had gotten uh, cancer about the time, I guess a little bit before I was born. Uh, I don't know how long he'd been diagnosed with cancer, but he did have cancer. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, I don't remember, this is only what I hear that my mom talked about and my brothers and sisters, that uh, I was just right at the stage where I was trying to walk, and he just prayed to God that God would just let him live until he seen his baby walk. And they said that I actually started taking a few steps a day or two before he passed. And uh, that's basically, you know, all that I know. It's not from from memory. It's just what I've been told. So it sounds like from what you were told, your dad was a a pretty good guy. Yes, as far as I know, uh, we had a good life and everything was going well and everything. And uh, then... Um, from there, I guess my mom just felt um, a little destitute, and she was, I'm sure she was overwhelmed with the thought of trying to uh, raise five kids by herself back in that day, because uh, she didn't have any skills as far as that goes for employment. So, um, in my thinking, um, I think that she just kind of gravitated to something where she thought maybe she's seen a little bit of security for her. And she hooked up with a a man. His name was Adam McGee. uh, But she hooked up with him. 
and she uh, never married, and eventually she ended up having four children by him, which would be my half-brothers and uh, sisters. And uh, he was he was a man. He had some mental issues, um, and uh, some of these mental issues was very um, abusive to us children. Now, myself, I didn't experience uh, some of the abuse, but I did see abuse being done to my older siblings. Um, the boys, he would uh, beat them really, really bad. Um, they couldn't hold their urine. Uh, he beat them so bad. Um, and then the older girls, um, he was inappropriate with the older girls. As soon as they be started to mature and become of age, he was inappropriate with the older girls. And so um, my older brother, Earl, uh, he was just 16 or 17 at the time. Uh, I can remember just looking up to him as just, he was just sort of like my superhero, I guess, because we had such a bad life. But um, I can remember my older brother Earl saying that before Mr. Shorty could be uh, inappropriate with me in that manner, that he was going to seek to get us out of that household some way, somehow. And from there, he started planning some type of a getaway for us. So, Mr. Shorty, that, that's the nickname that you, that's pretty much all, all I've ever heard you call him growing up. Uh, was That was a nickname that you really don't know where it came from, but that's what you guys called him. Right. That's what I don't know where it started, but we never called him Dad or anything. It was just Mr. Shorty to us. Okay. So, tell me about what is one of your earliest childhood memories uh, growing up? Um, I... I don't remember much. Uh, my earliest childhood memories, I would say, would be we lived in a really, really um, broken down house. I mean, this house was so broken down that um, it had, you could see the sunlight through the slats in the, the uh, walls. And... Um, it was uh, heated by an old wood stove in the wintertime and in the summertime. And when the rains would come, it would just rain all over in the house. We had to set buckets out all over the place. And it was very cold. It didn't even have drywall on so the... So it was just plain it boards. It was just two-by-fours. Yeah. One of my earliest memories, I just remembered it, was... Um, Earl was playing with me one time, uh, and he was throwing me up in the air and catching me. And we were laying on the bed, and he would throw me up, and he would catch me. And when I come down, a big old nasty nail was sticking out of one of the two-by-fours, and my hip caught it, and it ripped a big old gash in my hip. I still have the scar to this day. Of course, we were so poor, and my... Uh, Mom and stepdad never took us to a doctor for anything, so it just healed on his itself. But I can remember it being very, very painful. 
another painful thing that comes to memory right now was when I was like about six or seven years old, I got a real, real bad case of shingles. I mean, it started on my back and it come around uh, my whole back all the way around to my whole uh, stomach area and it was only about two inches from meeting, coming together around my whole body. Mm. That was so painful that and you uh, didn't go to a doctor or anything for that, right? No, they never took us to a physician. Because you guys uh, just didn't have the money for it. Didn't have the money, and we just they just done home remedies back then, and I guess they heard somewhere where if they uh, packed it with cornstarch, that that would help dry up the. It, it looked like raw hamburger meat, literally mm. all the way around my back and stomach, and they would pack it with cornstarch and let me go without a shirt because this was in the summertime, because if you put clothing on, when you would take your clothing off, all the scabs would pull off on your clothing, mm. and it just leave it bare and raw and looking like hamburger meat. But eventually, I got over that, and I still carry scars on my back to this day from the shingles. So um, you guys grew up, obviously, poor, uh, didn't have a whole lot to eat. So uh, I remember you've told me, uh, what was what was some of the things what your your mom would tell you when you got when you got hungry and complained <laughs> about being hungry? <laughs> I can remember this so vividly, and I guess it was because she thought, well, I can't do anything about it anyway. These kids are hungry, but we would go in and tell her that I can remember going in and tell her, Mama, I'm hungry, and she'd just look at us and say, Oh, eat one hand and save the other one for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, that was my signal to get on outside and play, and maybe we'd have something later, and maybe we wouldn't. So, so, so there there were times when you guys were outside playing that you uh, that you found things to eat. Yes, we did. We would be hungry at times, and like I said, because uh, we lived in very bad poverty. I mean, it's worse than what a lot of people see. But we'd be outside playing, and us as kids we learned some things to eat, and they had something, we called it rabbit grass. It looked like bright bunches of bright green clover, except the leaves was real tiny, tiny clover leaves. And it had something like a, um, a sweet tart taste to it when you ate it. But we would just literally pick this, what we called rabbit grass, and we'd just eat it while we was out in the yard or out playing in the fields or whatever. If we was hungry, we'd pick that rabbit grass. Or sometimes we would um, go in the neighbor's garden and pull up radishes and eat them. Or uh, every once in a while, we would steal a watermelon and bust it up and just eat it right there outside because so we would be so hungry. You guys did whatever you did to have to survive. Um, <coughs> so what about, um, like, I know you, you talked about uh, using nets in the ditches to catch, to catch food. Yes, the only food that we ever got uh, was like uh, they had to either sane for it in the ditches with sane. I don't know if people know what saning is, but you get on both ends of a net and sane the river, and whatever you catch in it, uh, that's what you eat. That's the only meat that we ever had was like what they saned out of the river or if they killed a squirrel or a rabbit or uh, 
a coon or whatever they could kill. Basically, that's what we ate. And I can remember my, I didn't have to sane in the river because I was too little, but my one sister, she had to sane in the river, and she would come out and have big leeches all over oh her legs goodness. that was sucking her blood. And we'd get salt and pour on those leeches so where they would turn loose. Uh, but, yeah, the only meat that we ever had, every seldom we would have chicken because we raised chickens some to lay eggs. But the only other meat we got was uh, the uh, game that they killed or the fish that they signed up or the turtles that come in the net. We ate the turtles, too, and the crawfish, whatever they caught in that net. That's what we ate. So the, the speaking of turtles, I remember you telling there was something about the turtle that you guys used to fight over. You remember that? I don't remember that story. The, I just remember the turtle eggs. Turtle eggs, yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I do remember that now. Uh, we would, um, they would boil the turtle, and then they would crack it open. And if it was a mama turtle that had eggs in it, they was in like little soft, leathery um, eggshells, sort of like, but. We found out that those things were good to eat once you boiled that turtle, and we would fight over those <laughs> turtle eggs because it was like a treat <laughs> to us. And we would bite open that leathery egg and just suck that egg right out of there, and it was pretty good stuff to us. <laughs> and us kids would always fight over the turtle eggs that we got. That was one of the stories growing up that I just couldn't imagine. It just <laughs> it just blew my mind. So. Uh, you talked about uh, every once in a while you guys were would have chicken to eat. So tell me, tell me about the, the, didn't you have a pet chicken? Yes, we did. Um, of course, we didn't have any toys growing up. Um, like one year, I can remember the welfare coming out, and they brought a few things like uh, cheese and food stuff, and then they brought one doll, and there was four of us girls. And I can remember... That one doll looked like heaven had come down to visit us. I had never seen a doll before. And, I mean, it was like the war was on to fight to be able to play with that doll because we never had toys. We just played with sticks and made up our own games and drew in the dirt and uh, just done things like that. So we had uh, chickens that we kept for somewhere they would lay eggs and we would have a eggs every once in a while. So me and my sister Nelda, uh, we both ended up picking us out what we called our pet chicken. And um, her chicken was named Click Clack, <laughs> and <laughs> my chicken was named Baby. And her chicken was the fat chicken, and my chicken was the skinny chicken. But um, one day uh, it come time. They was going to pick, we was going to have chicken for supper. And guess what? Baby and Clack Clack was going to end up on the table. Their number had come up. <laughs> yes, their number had come up. And so me and Nelda was just in pieces about that because that was our pets. We had raised from the time they was little baby chicks. And now we was going to have to eat them. So me and Nelda told each other, I think hers was the fat chicken. We told each other whenever we ate that... I would eat the fat pieces because that would be her chicken and I wouldn't have to be eating my chicken. 
and then she would eat the skinny pieces because that was <laughs> my chicken. So I actually come out a little bit better than her on that deal because I did get to eat the fat pieces. But we, we both lost our pet chickens. <laughs> so you, you, you were uh, – obviously you guys didn't have much supervision uh, growing up, being outside all the time. And uh, one time your curiosity got the best of you with, the, with a washing machine or something. Yes, that is correct. We had an old uh, ringer-type washing machine that where the ringers, uh, when you would turn them on, they would automatically just keep turning, and you would feed clothes through the ringers to ring out, to ring them out, so you could hang them on the line. And I'd watch my older sisters do this. I was too little to to do that just yet. But I'd watch my older sisters do this, and I got curious one day. They walked away from it. And I thought, I'm going to try that because it just looked like fun. Naturally, when I did, it caught my fingers, and it started feeding my arm through that ringer, and it went above my elbow. They finally come running out there with crowbars and everything to try to release it. They finally got it released, and I was able to take my arm out of there. It just crushed the bones all in it. And like I said, we never went to... A doctor or anything um, so they just tied a makeshift sling around my neck and I can remember the pain was horrific and they tied a makeshift sling around my neck and had me to carry my arm around in there for months on end and it healed up all right but today I have a great big dent in my arm where I guess it just crushed those bones so much. It never healed properly. It never healed. <coughs> so um, that's kind of a little bit of your childhood, and I'm sure that you could sit here and probably tell stories all day uh, about things uh, that happen. Um, the, one, of the, one of the last stories I remember is uh, you talking about playing hide-and-seek and... Seek and uh, Yes, we made up our own games, and of course, uh, hide-and-seek wasn't a made-up game, but uh, it was one that we played because we had no other games to play, and everybody would run and get their hiding places while the other one was counting, and back in the day, we lived down the old dirt, dirt road, and it was, they sometimes they herded cattle down that road, and at this particular time that we was playing hide-and-seek, there comes a herd of cattle coming down the road, and in some of these herds of cattle, they had real mean, what we called brammer bulls. And so, lo and behold, my sister had found her hiding spot <laughs> in a great big, these big burn barrels we see today. She crawled up inside of that burn barrel, and that was her hiding spot. <laughs> well, every once in a while, they couldn't keep these cattle uh, corralled, and they would get out of the, um, the herd. And the Brammer, ball, the Brammer Bull got loose in our yard and started oh, yeah. running around in there. And he found that barrel and he started buttoning it with his head <laughs> and rolling that barrel all over the place. <laughs> My sister was screaming her head off because that was her hiding place. <laughs> Nevertheless, we found out real quick where she was hiding. <laughs> so... Uh, you guys live with your mother and, and, and your stepfather, uh, whom y'all called Mr. Shorty. Um, so eventually it kind of, you mentioned he had some mental issues. So eventually it kind of came to a head. 
Uh, tell me a little bit about that. What what all came to um, to ending that? Okay, as I was saying that uh, he was inappropriate with my older sisters. They had become mature and stuff, and my brother swore that he would get. He said, "I'm going to get my baby sister out of this." Uh, before that ever happens to her and he started making a plan and he was only like 16 or 17 years old at this time he got him a little job I think it was delivering papers but I'm not sure but he had a little job of some kind and then he got my sister a job my older sister a little job at the dairy freeze place which sister was that Uh, that was Linda okay and uh, they would walk to their jobs and then come home because there was no transportation. And through all this, I don't know how he done it, but he saved enough money to rent a little apartment. And he rented this apartment ahead of time with a plan in mind to make an escape from that house from Mr. Shorty. And so um, when the time came, uh, somehow my um, my... Uh, stepdad, Mr. Shorty, and Mama found out that we were fixing to leave. I mean, um, I don't really remember how they found out, but they did. And so Mr. Shorty starts cussing a blue streak, and he says that uh, them kids ain't leaving, and he grabs the shotgun, and he points it at Earl, and he pulls the trigger, but there was no shells in it. So uh, he starts cussing again, and he said, come on, Maggie. He said, we're going to go to town and uh, get shells. Said, them kids ain't going nowhere. And so she just done what he said. And she was probably scared of him also. I think she was. And so she got in the car with him and uh, headed to town. And Earl said, okay. He said, this is our chance. Said, we need to go. If we're going to go, we have to go now. And I can remember him planning that so much. And so we started down the road walking. And basically with just a few little uh, clothes tied up in uh, a pillowcase or whatever, and we started walking down the road. There was five of us. So this was you and your your four brothers and sisters. (laughs) Yeah. And we started walking down the road. And uh, And how, how old were you at this time? I was probably still about, I'd say, between six and eight. I'm not sure. Yeah. And so we started walking down the road, and um, every time we'd see a car come by, we could hear a car coming. We'd jump down in the road ditches that had water in them and big, tall weeds and probably snakes and everything else in them, but we would jump down and duck in those big, tall weeds, and uh, we'd done that. A few times, and we did see when Mr. Shorty and Mama was headed back home. So uh, they were back home. They were headed back there to potentially kill all the kids. Yeah, they was going to kill us, or Mr. Shorty was. And so um, we dodged that, and we finally got to the little apartment that Earl had rented. And uh, so we lived there for a short time. It wasn't very long that we lived there, but we did live there for a short time. And what what happened? Uh, did somebody find you guys out, or actually, we don't know exactly uh, what took place, but the authorities did find out that underage kids 
was living there, you know, with little su supervision or whatever. I don't know if Mama and Mr. Shorty turned us in, but somebody turned us in to the authorities. There might have been just people seeing that there was no adult around. It could have been. And uh, we ended up uh, the what they call DHS today, I guess, uh, came and got. Uh, they actually got me and Nelda. We was the only ones they got. I think they figured out the three other ones was old enough to kind of fend for themselves. Mm -hmm. So they got me and my sister Nelda and uh, took us to a foster care place. Okay. And so was were there... Did you guys have to go to court uh, over that? Did your uh, oh yes, uh, we did. Um, at that time, they uh, they required my mom to uh, go to court over it. To uh, they was going to offer her like assistance, I guess, through the government to help um, raise us. You know, as far as financially with. Uh, government assistance or whatever and all of us kids I can remember we were all in the courtroom at the time and every one of them will say to this day and I don't know I like I said I think mama was afraid of Mr. Shorty and mm -hmm. she had so many insecurities about her um, and I don't think she was really stable so about the time that they told her it was, they basically give her an ultimatum. It was either Mr. Shorty or us kids. And right there in court, she says, the hell with those damn kids. And I can remember me being a little girl. Those words burned in my heart. Yeah. So that, that puts you guys like into, um, into being adopted so wh where was the first place you went when you when you were adopted out i'm thinking that actually we did not go after that court hearing the best that i can remember i don't think we went to a foster <coughs> home of any kind uh, -huh. uh i think that if i can remember right i think that my real dad's nephew was in the courtroom that day he okay. was the deputy of that little town so he was a deputy sheriff of that little town where y'all were that in we lived in okay. and i guess he knew about the court date evidently and so he was in the courtroom at that particular time and they was said that we was going to go to foster care well my dad's nephew henry and his wife's name was pixie so this was your real dad Yes, my real dad. Okay. Um, he spoke up and he said, um, he said, let those uh, girls come live with me. We want to take them in our home and give them a home uh, if that would be permitted by the court. And we were allowed to go and live with uh, Henry and Pixie. So this was your dad who had already passed away. This was his nephew and his wife. Yes, okay. my real dad. It was his nephew and his wife, and they took us in, and we went straight to their home after mm -hmm. that. And it was like, I mean, going to their home was like going to heaven, basically, because Something they had Something that a, you guys had never experienced before. Yeah, they had such a real nice place, and I had never seen anything like that. And uh, so we were in a good home at that particular time. Okay, so something happened, and that didn't end up working out. Uh, we didn't mention that. Uh, when you were a kid, you could remember people coming and picking you guys up for church a lot. So that ended up 
because of differences uh, in beliefs that ended up being a little bit of an issue there. Talk about that a little bit. Right. Whenever we were real young kids, there was a preacher and his wife from the little church, Pentecostal church in that town that would come pick us up for Sunday school all the time. They would come pick us up and then they would take us home. And, of course, we was taught under the Pentecostal beliefs, which some of it is very strict uh, teachings, and uh, we grew up under that, and that's what we were taught. So when we we went to Henry and Pixie's house, uh, they wanted to take us bowling, I can remember, you know, and do fun stuff with us, what kids do. And uh, But me and Nelda, we refused to participate because we were always taught that Everything like that. I mean, almost everything was wrong to do. We wouldn't even watch TV in the home. We'd never had a TV. Mm-hmm. But uh, we wouldn't watch TV in the home. They wanted to me and Nelda to get enrolled in like some uh, little kids' dance classes and what have you. And we would not conform to anything that they wanted to do for us. And you would think that. You know, but it was just the teachings of how we was taught always, you know, to to try to live a good life. And we were taught with some real strong restrictions. And so mm-hmm. we wouldn't conform to what uh, he wanted. He wanted to be able to offer us. Right. So uh, he was they were really trying to give you guys a, a good better home, life. But just because of previous teachings as a very young child and that stuff gets you know, uh, gets ingrained in you. That's uh, true. It, it ended up kind of being uh, where he thought that was something that they couldn't overcome. Yeah. He, he eventually thought that our lives was just so different that Nelda and I just wouldn't adjust to the lifestyle that they lived. So he was going to let us then uh, go back to being in foster care well, whenever um, we found out about that, we went to church and told Brother, there was we called them Brother and Sister Wyatt. And, and they uh, were the pastors of this church. They right? was the pastors of that church. <clears throat> we told Brother and Sister Wyatt that we was fixing to have to go back to foster care. And that's whenever Brother and Sister Wyatt stepped in and they asked Henry, because he did have some authority in the town, mm-hmm. uh, they asked Henry if that they could just take us and raise us. And Henry did give his consent for us to be raised by Brother and Sister Wyatt. Okay, so that's how you guys came to live with them. And they ended up taking, what, four of you kids? Yes, they took four of us. They took uh, me and Nelda, and they took my older sister, Linda. And then I had another brother that was a little older than Nelda. Uh, His name was Pierce. They took all four of us. Eventually, though, in just a short time, those kids was old enough to kind of make lives of their own. Linda married and and Pierce married, and I think Nelda ended up kind of running away with somebody. But then I was the only one that was really raised quite a few years by them. Okay. So at at some point, your brother uh, Earl had gotten kind of back on his feet and gotten gotten another apartment. And at some point, he wrote you a letter asking you if you wanted to come live with him. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes. uh, Earl had relocated in New Orleans, Louisiana, and um, he had gotten an apartment there. And he had heard that my mom and stepdad, Mr. Shorty, had ended up living under a bridge with the four half-brother and sisters. And uh, somehow, finally, Mr. Shorty ends up getting sent to 
um, a mental institution. And so he somehow gets in contact with my mom and my four siblings and gets them to come and live in the apartment with him. So Earl did. Earl did. Okay. And so <coughs> then he uh, writes me a letter uh, and sends it to Brother and Sister Wyatt's, and he's asking me if I want to, said he had a home there now, and if I wanted to come live there. And uh, I said, yes, I did want to, to try it out and go live there. So I took a bus, and I went to New Orleans, Louisiana, and I, I lived there for about a year, I would say, during this time, my stepdad had somehow got out of the mental institution, and he started living there, too. Uh, but one of the things why I didn't like it there was uh, it was during the time that all the racial stuff was going on, and um, I would walk to school, and there would be fights between the whites and the blacks, and uh broken Coke bottles being broke and chased, uh, blacks was being chased by whites and whites was being chased by the blacks and I was scared to death and sometimes I would hide in an apartment building uh, real early in the morning. I'd pretend like I was going to school but I would just sit in that apartment building in the stairwells and not have nothing to eat all day long and I just pretend like I went to school. And then when school was out, I could hear the other kids coming up the apartment buildings. I knew that school was out. So then I'd just go home and pretend like that I'd been at school. So you didn't have any way to tell time or anything like that? No, I just kind of gauged it on what I observed and what I seen. So this was during the time where, obviously in the 60s, where the racial wars were going on and all, and all this stuff. So it was it was pretty rough down there. Yeah, it was during that time. So eventually you went back to live with the Wyatts after after this, right? Uh, yeah, I did. But before that, I want to tell an incident that my okay. stepdad, I said he had somehow come back there to live. And um, he was very mental. And I think part of his diagnosis was schizophrenia. schizophrenia. Uh -huh. And uh, he imagined things all the time. And he would just talk to himself and... Uh, so one day we were all uh, in the house and my mama was putting clothes in the washing machine and all of a sudden I was in a bedroom. We heard a big old boom go off and he <laughs> shot the shotgun up in the ceiling and made a big hole in the ceiling. He said <laughs> there was some little green men up there looking at him. Oh and so naturally the authorities was called and right. he got carted off again to the <laughs> mental institution. <laughs> <laughs> because of him seeing little green men in the ceiling. So and he obviously had some issues there. He did. Okay. So then you, uh, <laughs> uh, that's a funny story. So, uh, I mean, I imagine it was scary. Yeah, at the it time. was scary then. Yeah. My mom liked to climb <laughs> in that washing machine when that gun went off. But um, anyway, that's when I made a decision to uh, move back with the Wyatts. Okay. Brother and sister Wyatt. So um, from there, how old were you about that time? Do you remember? Um, I was probably about 13, mm -hmm. I would say. So you were there a couple more years. Yeah. And, uh, then I went to brother and sister Wyatt's to live again. They, they gladly took me back in. They were good people and they were good to me. Right. Right. So, so uh, did they have any kids? Uh, yes, they had, um, she had two and then, 
Brother White had two kids, and then they mm-hmm. had one child together. Okay. So they had five all together. Okay. So, so you, so you grew up uh, with other kids there too. So. Yes, I had. They had a girl that was actually only about nine months younger than me. Okay. So what was her name? Her name was Becky. Okay. And so uh, you, you kind of had a sister growing up. Yeah, that time we anyway. really we got along pretty good together and everything. And in, in, in there a story about you and Becky running off with some boys or something? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I about forgot about that, but, uh, you know, I told you that the church teachings was pretty strict, and Becky's mama was pretty strict on us, too, and, uh, but uh, we got to kind of, in Sunday school class, there was these two boys named Jim and Jerry. Well, she already had Jerry as a boyfriend, and I was kind of looking at Jim, because I kind of liked him, and I kind of thought he might have liked me. So we planned something because <laughs> we couldn't hardly get together or anything because it, it was... Uh, Mama we, Wyatt had a close eye on you. Yeah, she had a close <laughs> eye on us. So Becky had just got her driver's license. And sometimes we would pick up this other girl uh, and bring her to church and take her back home after church. And uh, so she asked her mama if we could take uh, this girl back home when church was out. And her mama said that we could. But she was, you have to keep in mind, she was very strict. But during this time in Sunday school class, we kept passing notes to Jim and Jerry about maybe meeting them somewhere. And so they agreed that they would meet us right after church, after we took Virginia home. They would meet us at uh, Burger King, I think it was. (laughs) So we had this all planned out, and we thought we we were going to really get away with this. And so after Sunday school, we took Virginia. We took Virginia home, and um, on the way back, we slowed down when we got to Burger King, and sure enough, their truck was there. So we pulled into (laughs) Burger King. (laughs) This may sound funny. Now, I was just barely, I was probably 14 or 15, and Becky the same. And we pulled in there. As soon as we pulled in the parking lot, Becky jumps out, and she goes, gets in the truck with Jerry, and Jim jumps out, and he comes, gets in the car with me. We had time enough for maybe one kiss, and that was about <laughs> it. <laughs> what, what happened after your one kiss? <laughs> we, we thought we better get going because our, Becky's mama, we knew we'd be in trouble if we was very late. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that was about the end of that, and Jerry goes, gets back in the truck, and I get back in with Becky, and we start going home, and lo and behold, her mama did. We seen her pass us. She was coming to look for us. We seen her car pass us, and me and Becky start saying, oh, Lord, what are we going to do? What are we going to tell her? We made up a big story that since Becky had just got her license, we got a, behind a real slow-moving tractor that we were scared to pass. <laughs> Did that work <laughs> for you? And believe it or not, she swallowed the story, so we were saved. <laughs> Did she ever find out about this? <laughs> Later in years. <laughs> we told her about those shenanigans. Oh, my goodness. She said, I figured y'all was up to something. That's why I come out looking for y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow a parent always knows, right? Yeah. So. So shortly after that, you met uh, my dad. So how did it, how did that come about? Uh, yes, I did. Uh, that happened. Uh, it's quite a story because you wouldn't think that um, it was sort of like a, a whirlwind romance, I guess. But um, we had some uh, people that we went to church with all the time. They was called Emmett and Odell Robertson. And uh, we went to church with them all the time there in Louisiana. 
and um, they actually, uh, Emmett got um, assigned to a job in Columbus, Indiana, at a Cummins Engine Company, and so um, his whole family moved to Columbus, Indiana, Emmett and Odell and all their kids, and they invited us up after they got moved and settled in and stuff. They invited Brother and Sister White and me and Becky at the time uh, to come up there for vacation. So we did. We uh, drove all the way up there about eight hours and uh, stayed with the Robertsons. And, of course, the Robertsons went to church all the time, and that's what we did all the time, too. So when they went to church, we just went to church with them. And so that's when um, your dad, Roy, was uh, he was going to that church that they went to at that mm-hmm. time, and he was engaged to a girl to be married with. Uh, he had been engaged to her for about six months to a year. And, um, of course, when we seen each other, I guess we started sparking or something. <laughs> Sparks went <laughs> off somewhere. And uh, he, we were there only two weeks. And in that two weeks' time, he had broke his engagement with his girl and packed up his clothes and moved lock, stock, and barrel. Come, I rode back with him to Louisiana in his car, and he loaded up and come to Louisiana to live. Well, that was short-lived. <laughs> <laughs> he stayed there long enough to marry me. His parents come down for the wedding and everything. So and he had to have been no, no more than 18. He was only 18 at the time. Okay. So uh, we got married, and it wasn't but a month later, we moved back to Indiana where he got a job, but then shortly after that, he was, um, he didn't enlist. He was drafted. He was drafted into the Army. This was Uh, during the Vietnam War. Yeah, it was during the Vietnam War era. But uh, we moved back to Columbus, and during that time, I, I lived with his mom and his dad, uh, his mom and dad was very good to me, and she was more like a mom to me ever than anybody ever was, really. I mean, she taught me a lot of things. I learned a lot from her, and I do believe she she loved me like one of her own children. Absolutely, that, that's that's one thing Grandma had about her. She had the ability to 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 love people no matter who they were, yes. and to and to really take people in. And it doesn't didn't really matter their background. She just. Uh, she loved everybody. Yes, she did. She was a very loving and giving person, and uh, she invested a lot in me. So she taught. She basically taught you everything. She taught me how to cook, and uh, she taught me how to clean. And of course, when she she worked a full time job, and I was just sixteen when I married, just you know, just a young girl still. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I would, in order to make it easier on her, I would have the house cleaned up when she got home from work. And I'd ask her what she was going to fix for supper that night. And I would have it started before she got home. And that took a little bit of load off of her that way. She taught me how to do things. And uh, and that way it helped her out too. So right. we got along good together. And she was just a real sweet lady. So eventually... <laughs> Um, you guys lived in Indiana for what, 10, 12 years, maybe? Uh, yeah, uh, probably something like that. So eventually, uh, I was born in Indiana in Sullivan. Um, about a year after I was born, we moved to Arkansas. Yes, we did. Okay. Uh, we started, uh, we went to church for a while and, um, 
of course, we had a church there, and um, Roy got a job at a catfish place there in uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas, that was Catfish Galley, and uh, we would go in and do all the prep work there at Catfish Galley. Uh, Those are some of my earliest memories. Yeah. Sleeping sleeping across the chairs at the table late at night or early, early in the morning yeah, while, that's while these true. guys worked in the back. Yeah, because his dad also worked construction. So in order to do the prep work on the uh, catfish galley, we would wake the kids up about midnight and go to start doing that prep work. And uh, Brandon and his sister was little at that time. And we would push chairs together in the restaurant and uh, let them sleep because they had to go to school the next morning and cover them up with blankets, and then we would wake them up about in time to get back home and get dressed and ready to go to school. And then I would go to school and teach all day, and from there I would go and waitress at the restaurant at night and then come home and rest a little bit, and then we'd go in and do all that prep work. It was a very, very hectic, busy schedule. And ended up, Roy somehow got fired from that job, and we was all so happy. You know, when, when he got I re- fired, I remember that. Uh, I can remember so vividly, and I, you know, my childhood. It, I told you a while back, it's just kind of in pieces. But that's one of the things I remember so vividly is the day he got fired. I remember him answering the phone in the living room, and. Uh, they yeah, it wasn't if, a sad day. Yeah, they, they asked him if he could go somewhere private. I remember him putting it on hold and, and going in the back bedroom to talk. And on his way back, he goes, well, I'm fired. <laughs> <laughs> he just he just knew it. And know? all of you kids was just, I mean, y'all was happy. Like, you ain't never seen you be happy. <laughs> so ev- eventually, uh, you guys got in the rest of restaurant business uh, and uh, ended up uh, years later uh, divorcing. Um, so... Um, what what are some of the jobs you did after the divorce? Well, when we divorced, I actually, basically, your dad took care of all the business. You mm-hmm. Later on in the years, you learned about this. I didn't so much. He paid all the bills, everything. Uh, I didn't so much know how to even begin to pay a bill or how to begin to even balance a checking account Mm -hmm. or to write a check. Because you've never been taught that or or had to do it. No, I never had to do that. So when we divorced, I basically, you and sis were still at home. You was about 10. Sis was about 13. Mm -hmm. And I had never done anything. So it was very challenging for me to all of a sudden just be there on my own and have to start taking charge Mm -hmm. and doing things. But we managed and we made it. Uh, I eventually, uh, I waitressed a little bit at Catfish Galley, uh, so I'd have some income coming in. And then eventually I took a job as a full-time nanny uh, for some people. Uh, I would go in. I'd done their cooking, their cleaning. I took care of their children Mm -hmm. uh, after school. I'd done that for a while. And... um, and we, we just carried on. I finally learned how to uh, manage and take care of the financial end of the household, which I had never done before. It was very scary. But uh, we managed, and we got through that period. And, uh, you know, here I am today. You know, as a kid, I, I know as, as stressful as I know that was on you, I don't even remember a hiccup in the childhood. So, you know, I know 
that that as hard as that was for you you didn't you know you didn't skip a beat as far as I was concerned you know it was you know dad wasn't there as much but you know it was it was it was still good well you just learn how to shoulder the responsibilities you know when you all of a sudden thrown with two kids to raise and you know you've mm-hmm. never done anything you just learn to finally uh, buck up and just do what you got to do basically right. and I you know stepped up to the plate and done what I had to do sometimes uh life just um teaches you lessons and uh sometimes that's how you learn is just being forced into doing things like that but we managed and we got through that so during this during this time you went through what grade did you go through in school I only went as high as the eighth grade okay so at some point during the 90s I know I know you got uh your GED Yes, I did eventually get a GED when I was mm-hmm. probably, I'd say between 35 and 40 years old. I'm not sure. And uh, I went back and I got my GED. So after going through the eighth grade, you went back and, and, and completed that. So that's that's awesome. So you had a couple couple other jobs. Uh, eventually, uh, you moved here to Paragould. Yes, I did. Okay. And you've been here for how long now? Probably for, um, what, would you say the last 15 years? 15 to 17 years. 15 to 20 years, probably, something within that So we we grew up in Lake City, Arkansas. That's where we were were from. Yes, y'all grew up in Lake City. And then when y'all was all grown and married, I relocated in Paragold. And then I started Mm -hmm. working at um, a place called Green Acres Nursing Home here Mm -hmm. in Paragold, Arkansas. Right. And uh, so you worked there. What did you start out doing there? Uh, I started out just basically as a relief cook for the the woman that cooked for her days off, like two days a week off. And then the rest of the days, I would go back there and wash dishes. I was a mm-hmm. dishwasher. And I started doing that at Green Acres Nursing Home full time. So you were there about two or three years, and you discovered something. Yeah, I was there a couple years whenever my... Uh, supervisor started talking about, you know, she says, in one year, I plan to retire. And I had kind of watched and observed uh, what she'd done and stuff. And I thought, it doesn't really look all that hard. I wonder if I could do that. (coughs) So I just kind of tossed that around in my mind for a while. And then I thought, well, I'm just going to go ask the administrator and see what I have to do. And so I did, and to make a long story short, uh, she told me, said, well, you have to take a course uh, through the University of Florida. It's a a dietary supervisor's course, and it's uh, 18 months long. You have to take that course, and then you have to pass a state-certified test. And so I thought, well, I wonder if I could do this. I was really scared. I'd I'd never done anything before like that in my life. And not even just basically a GED and only an eighth grade education, you know, before that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, make a long story short, I enlisted in that course. I still worked 40 hours a week. It was one of the hardest things that I've ever done in my life. I would work 40 hours a week and be dead tired when I got home. When I would get home, I would crack open them books and start studying. And I would study till 11 o'clock or midnight, uh, till I couldn't hold my eyes open any longer. I would put the books down, go to bed. I'd have to get up 
at 3 o'clock in the morning because I had to be to work at 4.30 in mm-hmm. the morning. So it was really rough hours and rough going. For 18 months, I'd done that. And basically, um, you know, uh, after I got through the course, I had to go to Little Rock and take a, stir- a state uh, certified test to be certified. I did pass the test, and I became, actually starting from a dishwasher, I became dietary supervisor at Green Acres Nursing Home, and I'd done that for 15 years. Until you retired. Until I retired, So yes. now, um, you know, you, to me, this is a great story because you started out with literally nothing and, uh, you know, ended up, you know, through the grace of God and, and your hard work, you're, you know, probably the hardest working person I've ever met in my life. Uh, I've never known you to do a job and not give it, uh, you know, a hundred percent. Um, I still get mad at you now when you mop, you get down <laughs> on your hands and knees because you don't like, you don't like how a mop does it. So you, you try to get down on your hands I could and just knees do it better. <laughs> and, and cover all the floor with a paper towel or, or, or a towel or, and, and your cleaning solution. It, you know, and, and, you know, I keep telling you you're old, too old to be doing that, and you keep telling <laughs> yeah, me to shut I know. up. <laughs> I know. That's just my so. way of doing stuff. I have to make sure that, I mean, I just I attend to detail, and I want to make sure it's clean, and I don't know. It's just, it's just that some of the things, actually, I think back on it now that my brother instilled in me because he was in the Army for a little while, the same brother that done all the things mm-hmm. about, you know, getting us – um, out of the house and stuff, but he was a really neat freak, and he he taught me how to, he would make his bed, his shoes would all be lined up all nice and neat in a row under his bed, and not a wrinkle in his bed, and he just taught me how to be clean, and it's just some of the things that he instilled in me, right. actually, years ago. Now, and, I know uh, later in life, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Yes. Um, and one of the things, as a teenager, I can remember going to his house a few times. And it was, although it wasn't uh, the, the perfect house because he lived on government assistance and stuff like that, he was one of the neatest people I've ever met in my life. Even being diagnosed with that, everything he had had a place. And... His place, even though it wasn't the the nicest, was very meticulously arranged. And that's one thing I can remember about that. And also, he was a natural-born artist. Yes, he was a very good artist. I mean, he could draw a picture of you, and it looked better than the photograph picture. It was phenomenal. Yeah, even after he was diagnosed, he did some art. That's that's amazing. But he was uh, diagnosed as a, 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 I think you call it, maniac schizophrenia or anyway he had uh, that disease and I I don't know if it was from all of his hardships of of how when he was so young he had so much responsibilities on his shoulders Mm -hmm. or what but um, eventually you know he was really bad and had to go to the nursing home it went you know in the last but I remember one incident, I just think it's kind of funny, and I'll throw it in here, but it, when he was living in the apartment, and I knew his health was starting to fail, and I thought I would want a keepsake from him, you know, mm-hmm. um, before he passed. So I asked him, I said, Earl, I said, do you think maybe you could, if I come one day and just sit, 
you could draw a pi- you could draw my picture and let me keep that as a keepsake, you know. And he talked like he could and stuff. And I kept asking him, and he'd kind of keep putting me off. So finally, one day, I said, Earl, said, can you sit here? And if I stay here and, and draw my picture, he said, no. He said, I don't feel like it today. And so I said, well, what about tomorrow? If I come back tomorrow, can you draw me <laughs> then? He said, no, I'm not going to feel good tomorrow either. <laughs> <laughs> so he knew how to brush me off. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But he, he loved you enough not to be, not you know, not to be mean to you. Cause yeah. That, that's awesome. So um, I appreciate you sitting down with me, Mom. This has been uh, awesome for me because I've learned things that, you know, that I did not know uh, even all the stories I've heard growing up throughout the years. So, well, I've enjoyed talking to you, and that's probably only the half of the stuff if I could sit. <laughs> You'll probably tell. think of uh, another hour <laughs> uh, worth of worth of stuff. Like, after oh, I forgot this, but yeah. yeah, it's a it's quite a story. And like I said, probably uh, if I wrote a book, a lot of it I don't know if if everyone would even believe some of the stuff in it because right. we was raised up pretty rough. But anyway, I've enjoyed telling the story and. It just kind of, you know, it's good to reminisce. Yeah. So, so. Being, from being raised up, you know, as, as poor as just about anybody I've ever heard to, uh, to getting a college degree and uh, making a career um, and retiring from that career to me is just one of the great stories because there's so many places in there where that could have went wrong, you know, and could have went a different direction. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I, I thank God every day for my life. I mean, I've met hardships, but the hardships I think has made me who I am today. Absolutely. And, you know, the things in your life, you can use them as a stepping stone or you can let them bring you down one or the other. You know, it's what you choose to do with your life. And I think everybody has that choice, you know, to to uh, to make good of their life or to be negative and, you know, let it be a downfall for them. And right. I don't ever want it to be a downfall. I want to learn from every experience in my life as I go. Absolutely. Well, you are an awesome mother. I could not be more happy to be called your son. Well, and I'm proud to have you as my son, Bubba. And I, I think... Uh, I thank you for sitting down and talking with me and uh, love you very much. And uh, I guess this is where we'll end it. Love you too, bub. Thanks for the opportunity. All right, bye.